Welcome to the Hey Salespeople podcast, where we focus on delivering immediately actionable best practices for sales professionals. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Hey, salespeople, welcome to the podcast. Today is my great pleasure to welcome Wes Baker. He is Senior Manager of Demand Generation at Jitterbit. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you for bringing me on. I'm excited to be here. If you have not heard of Jitterbit, they are an iPaaS provider, which is an integration platform as a service. It's a bit of a mouthful, so I'm going to ask Wes to explain what that actually means. iPaaS, a uh, very exciting industry within software, but essentially we provide seamless connectivity uh, throughout your enterprise in regards to your applications, your databases, integrating them all together intelligently to make sure that your data is flowing to run your business efficiently. Wes started out as an SDR, moved into SDR management, and then ultimately now is in a role that combines demand generation along with sales and revenue operations. So we're going to get into a lot of those fun topics. I always start with two questions. So Wes, the first question I have to get to know you a little bit better is to reflect on your favorite sales or business or leadership book of all time and and why that was so important to you. There's a few, I guess, not necessarily a book that stands out, but one that always comes to mind for me is the Medic methodology. For those that may not know, Medic is a metrics, economic buyer, decision-making process, decision-making criteria, identified pain and champion. And whenever you're digging through these deals, looking for those various elements uh, within the deal cycle is very critical. So not necessarily a book, but more of a school of thought. I absolutely love Medic and I implore it whenever I uh, speak to salespeople to make sure you read up on it and uh, get to know it because it's very effective in enterprise sales. The second question I'd like to ask is for you to reflect a little bit on maybe like the first deal you ever closed or the first thing you ever sold when you were a kid or a teenager. So me and my brother, actually it was more my brother at the time, he kind of figured out the flipping game a little bit early on. We did this in the form of actually doing iPhones, some of the original iPhones. So we figured out that people would sell their iPhones on Craigslist and we can go and you know swap out a SIM card or two and then flip them for you know $50 profit on Craigslist. <laughs> so we actually, for a summer, did this as a full-time business. So we're just scouring Craigslist over and over, trying to find those people that didn't necessarily know what their phones were worth, uh, You know, cutting them by $40 and flipping them for a $40 profit. Didn't last for the long term. It was really just a summer thing. And my brother was the one that was really proficient about it. He was turning it into a science, knowing the right gigabytes and what provider needs to be and what phones cost what for each provider. And then what you can also do to unlock the phones per provider as well. It really turned to a science. <laughs> Basically you used an information advantage to arbitrage the iPhone swap market. Yeah, especially during the craze too, right? That was when everyone was getting an iPhone and um, smartphones were really taken off. So yeah. Before we get into the sales engagement evolution and AI in particular, I just love to understand, you know, why did you choose to become, uh, why sales for you and, and why start out as an SDR? So actually, even taking a step back one job previously, I worked at a mom and pop system integrator out of college. So that was my real first job. And actually, I was an account executive. So didn't even do the SDR role, went straight to account executive and had to source my own leads through LinkedIn, cold calling, outbounding, begging them to take a meeting with me. That job was really tough. (laughs) I had a very large quota and I was still trying to figure out how to generate pipeline and use a CRM and figure out what sales is all about. 
as a mom and pop, they probably had no sales training. So you just do a sink or swim, right? I was lucky enough to have a mentor and I'm sure everybody says this, but having mentors in life is very key. So my mentor was the one that showed me, this is how I talk to the salespeople. This is what, you know, their commissions are based off. So this is what they like to hear about when they hear about implementation services. And this is how you talk to them, you know, do lunch and learns, take them out to get drinks. He taught me the inner secrets of it all. But yeah, definitely took a while to kind of catch up to speed. I was somewhat successful at it. I definitely struggled through it. I did last for a year. After that is when I actually started at Jitterbit and I decided, hey, you know, I'm going to take a step back. I want to learn the product and what selling a platform is actually all about. So starting the SDR position, which was great because it was incredibly easy doing inbound. And (laughs) I think it was a little bit of outbound, but I was on the inbound side as well. And I said, wow, people actually just answer the call all day and not have to do outbounding calls to reps that don't want to talk to you. This is great. So hit quota enough times, was successful in that role. I jumped to doing enterprise and different industries as an SDR. And that's when I jumped into the SDR manager role. My manager at the time, who was the SDR manager, pretty much just said, hey, you know, this isn't for me. I think you could step up to the plate and do this thing. So took the opportunity when I saw it. That's where things got exciting for me because I was able to not only tell the trade secrets of what I learned being an SDR, but also kind of rebuild the tech stack that was in place beforehand. You know, we were kind of a startup then, only 100 employees or so, kind of getting our feet wet with, hey, you know, we can buy technology to help us sell even faster, cheaper, better. So I was lucky enough to come in an inflection point where they let me kind of go and build the stack and build the team. I do want to step back and, you know, as you were evolving to selling to larger and larger enterprise accounts, what differences did you have in your approach when you were approaching, say, a mid-market account versus an enterprise account, even as an SDR? as an SDR, right? You're expected to make call after call after call. It's tough to get in that research time to know who you're going to be speaking to, but it's absolutely critical. Are you speaking to, you know, a low-level employee who is a systems analyst and, you know, hasn't moved up the company in four years, right? Or are you talking to somebody who is more mid-level management, actually has some pull and authority and, you know, is going to be able to bend the VP of IT's ear when the time comes? So being able to like sniff that out early on is critical. And I feel like that's like a big part of like a mid-market company versus enterprise company, finding the right champions and building those champions gets to be really tough, especially in enterprise, right? You really got to have brand recognition to get to those key people. Whereas with like mid-market and SMB, it's a little bit easier to get to those decision makers because there's not very many of them. When you moved into managing the sales development team, What were some of the things that you view as keys to success in leading a team to meet and exceed quota? When I actually was put into this role, my VP of sales told me, hey, Wes, you have three things to focus on. And that is people, process, technology. And it's in that order, exactly in that order. I absolutely love that. I took it to heart. And the first thing I did was I made sure we had the right team. At that point in time, we didn't, and I knew we didn't. The SDRs I was working alongside, I knew some of them would take long breaks. They were just in it to you know, kind of hang out and weren't hungry. They didn't have that grind, that SDR grind in them. They just weren't happy there. So it was just like, okay, let's have a discussion. Let's talk about this. Is this the right thing for you? It took me a while, but eventually we did kind of move those people along. And then we kind of brought in the next first wave of individuals who I was able to interview and you know worked with varying recruiters and different channels to find these individuals, trying to find people with the entrepreneurial spirit that want to make something out of themselves and are the go-getters. 
it's hard to find talent, but that was like a big focus of me was focusing on people once I got in and getting people that were hungry. That was probably why it's in that order because that was the biggest reason for my success in the SDR management role. I hired really great SDRs and they're actually all still at Jitterbit today and most of them are doing inside sales. I have one over on product marketing and one over on product management, a couple over in the CSM team. So hiring good talent, people that are striving for uh, that success goes a long way and they help you get to the next point. We've actually done some data science where we looked at SDRs who are successful and success being defined as moving from SDR to AE inside of their company. That's how we define success. And whether you realize or not, your actually background is one of the green flags, if you will, which is that oftentimes people who were account executives often in possibly a smaller organization who are looking for the opportunity to get into a better industry turn out to actually be great SDRs. Are there other factors that you look for when you're trying to identify talent? Like you talked about they're entrepreneurial, they're hungry, but other, how else do you detect that? It's tough for SDRs because it's like, what kind of SDRs are you hiring and what industry you're hiring for? For Jitterbit, we deal with data integration, right? And that's a very complex subject. The reason why I had a leg up is because I came from a system integrator. I actually sold one of our competitors back then. I didn't really know the integration space, but I sold a integration platform for doing the implementation work on it. So I got my feet wet pretty early on with what data integration was all about. And I understood it. But for SDRs coming in, you know, if they don't come within the SaaS world or, you know, if they're straight out of college, which we often do, everybody hires SDRs uh, straight out of college, they're not going to know what a data integration is, let alone how to use a CRM effectively. So it's like one of the hardest jobs is being an SDR. I think a lot of people on this podcast probably agree with that. It's not an easy role to be successful in. You really have to have that personality grind. And then I call it within being a SDR at Jitterbit because it's so technical. I say technical competency. You don't have to be a technical person, but you have to BS your way through speaking to a, a CTO or VP of IT and be competent in what you're saying enough for him to believe that you know what you're saying and that the technological piece of it is sound. How do you assess technical competency during the interview process? Or not, right? You may just sort of hire them and then train them. Yeah, a lot of it is training. Sometimes you can get somebody from a related industry that was, you know, technical previously. Like I hired one SDR and he uh, came from like a healthcare background and he built like a healthcare app and he was going to be our healthcare SDR, right? So he had to be technically competent within the healthcare realm. Even that was over my level of understanding. Like I knew that, you know, HIPAA and the basic compliances, but like there's even, you know, fire and a bunch of other protocols under that. So judging it can be tough, but you can hire, you know, if they come from like some related industry and it's technical or um, like you said, a lot of it is on the job training. They just need to be competent. They need to make sure that they can carry a conversation and truly believe what they're saying. And they'll learn the tech speak over time. But at least like if they do slip up, they say, you know, I not necessarily know the answer to that question. Let me go and give that feedback to the team and I'll come back to you uh, with an answer, right? Being able to be competent enough to get through that conversation and push it and not be a barrier or a block. So very critical, especially for any high tech sales like we do. Some organizations will do a variant on a cognitive skills test, aka an IQ test. Do you guys do that when you hire SDRs? There's a lot of testing now going on. We never got to that level. I wouldn't be surprised if we relook at that again sometime in the future, but we haven't gotten there yet. A lot of it is just like 
who is this individual? What did they do in college? That's a big one. I loved on seeing LinkedIn profiles, people that had like co-founder or startup experience and not needing necessarily be successful, but you know, maybe they launched some sort of Kickstarter or something that was like extracurricular, like outside of school, pushing the boundary a little bit. I absolutely love seeing that kind of stuff because then you can tell they have the hunger and the drive and maybe you need to pave the way for them, but at least they'll do whatever it takes to, to make it work out for them. Well, we talked a decent amount about people. Let's transition over to process. As you took over leadership of the team, were there certain processes that you either instituted or changed? I was lucky enough to actually, the process was pretty good at Jitterbit. You know, we, we split up and dissected our pipeline to different stages. That was already there. We had MQLs, you know, prospect MQL. We were on the MQL to SQL to SAL, and we still are today, which funny enough, I think that was kind of like different a couple of years ago, or uh, that wasn't like industry standard. Now, Jocko and force management and all these sales uh, consultant companies are coming and saying, oh, no, that's the correct model. You do want to be SQL to SAL. We had the infrastructure in place. Now, what we didn't have was the training and resources, which were medic came in. So we went through the force management program. This was like two and a half years ago. And that that was really a pivotal moment in our sales org and marketing of really dissecting the very front of the funnel and like what exactly is going to be happening. Like what are the links in the chain in order to carry that prospect from just learning who Jitterbit is to getting a meeting, to meeting with the AE, to not showing them a demo, but instead we're going to go over their exact requirements, build a business case, discuss positive business outcomes and what success looks like, share with them proof points. And then once they say, yes, this all looks great, this is what we want to take a look at, then show them a demo, right? And then we, we would call that the 30% in our pipeline is actually having that call and discussing all their requirements and uh, what we can do for them. And then the 40% is actually the demo. Once we built the process, then it was like, okay, now let's go and build the technology component, which is what we love. Let's go and find the right technology to enable that process, enable these people that we brought into the org. I know you've have, you have kind of quite the stack of sales engagement technologies, leaderboards, chatbots, the whole enchilada of things in there. So we can, we can dive into, I mean, any of those and we can go deep on sales engagement. People understand sort of the current state, right? Where you've got phone, you've got email, you've got social, potentially direct mail types of integrations. But if you were to wave a magic wand, what are some of the changes that you would like to see this industry evolve toward? The biggest problem right now that we're all experiencing, especially as like email marketers, um, which is somewhat under my umbrella, is uh, the amount of spam we all get, right? Reply rates are low. No one wants to answer emails. My inbox, I can't clear it. I don't think anybody can clear their inbox anymore. It's absolutely terrible. And a big reason for that is because everybody is hyper obsessed with like reply rates. Like, how can I get this person to respond to me? I'm going to send them a random gift card and hopefully they'll answer and go use the coffee card to talk to me. Or, uh, you know, I'm being sent a soccer ball right now. And I'm just like, guys, I'm not interested. I don't need a soccer ball. But we're hyper obsessed reply rates, which is good, because that's how the conversation starts, how you put the meeting, that's how you say yes, I'll take a look at your product. But the problem is, we're also focused on these reply rates that we lose focus on the metric that really does matter. And it's more positive replies. We need positive replies and people that want to speak with us and make sure you're targeting your right persona and your ICP and you know, you're not hitting the right people that just don't want to talk to you. So what I'm most excited about 
is for AI and machine learning to get to the point where it's able to detect what is the sentiment of this reply you're receiving. And the reason why that's so important is because instead of focusing on reply rates, it's instead going to put the focus on positive replies. And thus, people are going to be making sure that they're talking to the right persona that actually wants to speak to them back. And it'll tell marketers, hey, you, you are saying the right thing or you're not saying the right thing. Like if I have a cadence right now and it has like it's an outbound cadence, right? And it has a 20 percent reply rate, super high. You know, I'm going to think that's good. I'm going to think, wow, like this is working. This, this, the CMO or VP of sales is going to say, keep using that cadence. It's the best cadence I've ever seen. But then if we flip it on to have, okay, now you see the sentiment. Okay, 2% of that is positive, but like 18% of that is that negative. So people are saying, no, I don't want to speak to you. No, I'm not interested. No, I'm not the right person for you. Then now your perception of is that a good cadence is like completely changed, right? Like now it's like, okay, Maybe you have a great content writer and you know she's using the best email tactics to get them to respond, doing the re and the subject line, hitting them up five times a day. So I get most excited about that because I, I know with AI machine learning, that's like the next thing that's coming. And it's funny too, I ask most companies today, like, how do you track sentiment? Like I've, I've asked a lot of like top companies. I, I go to a lot of these like sales engagement trade shows, right? I've asked companies like Drift and a lot of these other hyper growth companies. They do track sentiment. A lot of people don't actually do it. They're like, oh, yeah, we don't actually track sentiment. It's just replies. I'm like, whoa, that's, that seems pretty crazy. And the only way that I've found to effectively do it today is how, how I do it with our campaigns. We're running a very large manufacturing campaign right now. Is uh, I hire a summer intern. <laughs> and I literally have this intern go through the entire cadence of ours and look up what every single reply was. And then tag that reply, was this positive? Did they book a meeting? Did they refer us to somebody? Are they wanting to engage with us? Was it neutral? Did they say, hey, not right now, maybe later, um, no thanks? Or was it negative? Take me off your list. I can't believe you're doing this. This is worst practice ever. And that's actually been like very effective for us because we can pivot our message and change our messaging if we're seeing a trend of, you know, this, this clearly this cadence is not working. This is not the way to approach it, right? If someone replies, it's most likely that it's a positive reply. It's sort of like, uh, you know, if I get a, I'm not going to waste my time being on the recipient end to have a negative reply, but you've actually now seen the data, right? Because you've got this intern going through all those emails. Is that what he or she has found? Have they, have they, or is it more that there actually are a lot of negative replies? What I generally see is there actually is a lot of negative and I actually call it neutral where they just say no. Right. Negative. I want to see like if they're like unsubscribe. Right. Because unsubscribe, it's like I never want to hear from you guys again. Like take me off. And we, there is a lot of un people that say unsubscribe, even though a lot of emails might have the little link below. I'm pulling up some of my data right now. This is considered good, by the way. So this is actually like we put a lot of marketing effort into this. We put months and months of work, but I'm seeing a 10% positive. Of the reply is 10% positive. Yes, 10% positive. 15%, we call it semi-positive. And those are pretty much referrals. Like, hey, I'm not the right person, but go talk to Joe Schmo over in IT. And then 50% of that is neutral. People that are just saying, nah, not interested, uh, no thanks, maybe later. And then actually 25% is negative. And I actually think that negative is still really high, unfortunately. That's the one I want to get down, right? Because I don't want to piss people off. And this campaign is very large, like very, very large campaign. So when you think of like 
we're getting thousands of replies for our team, 25% of those are not happy with what our messaging is. Like that needs to let the indicator lights go off to marketing saying like, Hey, this is the metric we need to get lower and down. But you know, this being a manual process of having an intern going to do that, it, it's great for the summer because we have all this data for the summer. But you know, this turns off once summer is over, and we kind of lose insight into like how our campaigns are performing and should we be changing our messaging? What should we be doing differently? To get the negative replies down, it's really a function of multiple things, right? One, it's a function of getting the right people to begin with, right? And then secondly, you know, to have the right messaging towards those people the messaging as well as the presentation of the messaging, right? Yeah, I mean, it really depends on your persona. So for this campaign, it's pretty simple. We did two different personas. We do decision maker and end users. So decision makers within IT and then the end users of our product, potential end users. So that metric I gave you was actually our tier one, we call it, but those are our decision makers. Now, funny enough, I'm looking at the tier two now and the negative is actually 50%. And I think I know why. As marketers and, and salespeople, I need to go and be like, hey, the, guys, this message is not necessarily working. And I know a large portion of this where we were targeting manufacturing and there's a lot of engineers within manufacturing. And since we sell to IT, you know, how do we detect like a, a software engineer versus like a mechanical engineer, right? So my gut feeling is that it is on the persona side. We didn't hit the nail as hard as we should have on our end user mark. So back to the drawing board, let's repaint what our tier two persona looks like and titles within those personas and functions within those personas. Clearly, we didn't hit it on the head. You're going to ultimately evaluate right sales engagement platforms that, that have this sentiment analysis in there. Would you take on faith the percentages that they give you? Or would you do an A-B test where you once again hired an intern to classify things and then looked at what the sentiment analysis algorithm told you was the percentages? I probably would have a little bit of doubt first pass. You know, eventually I'll definitely trust it as the science gets better and, you know, people are reliant on it. Over time, I would definitely trust the robots. I think they could do a better job than us. We're getting so much spam, right? And hopefully that like reduces the amount of spam and focuses on like engaging content and then thus focusing on good replies because we all feel it in our inboxes today. And I feel like if all the major sales engagement providers go this direction, the industry will shift and maybe sales folks will be hated a little bit less <laughs> because of it. One of the inputs to it's sort of AI-based sales development, right? This grand vision that some vendors in the space have is you need to know what the sentiment of the reply is. Do you have any thoughts on whether or not the sales engagement bot as a concept is something that's particularly viable or, or not? I'm a big believer It'll catch up and get to it at some point. And I think it's closer than we all think. I think it'll be like in two years. So the sentiment analysis stuff, that's that's next, right? That's happening like in the next six months. After that, you know, okay, well, now we know the sentiment. We can have some canned responses and have the system automatically respond on our behalf. So taking the human element out of it. And I think where the humans are going to come to play, it'll be more on like the meetings. But in terms of like the back and forth emails, I think that's going to become more and more automated over time especially people are comfortable asking qualification questions, which you see in Drift, for example, people, they're, they're used to answering that set of questions. Yeah. And my Drift has been amazing too. And a lot of it too is like, it cuts down on SLA, right? Like instead of having to have a contact form and have somebody wait for an SDR to reach out and make sure it's in a timely manner, instead it's come to the website, 
you know, select some criteria and then I drop the SDRs calendar right here. And I think the more we do that, the faster people are going to be able to evaluate technology. You keep them engaged or engaging with them when they're engaged because, you know, we all know in sales, time kills deals. And especially on the very front end of the funnel, especially with access to how much information we have, if you're not answering that phone or that email or able to get their attention within the first five minutes, they're onto the competitor's website and looking at something else or, you know, working on the next project. So that's where I get excited about all this stuff too is uh, cutting down on SLA significantly and you know, getting them to talk to people about their problems, which is what we all want to do. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to someone who is so broadly knowledgeable about the sales space in general. If people want to learn more about Jitterbit or want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do those two things? In touch with me would be LinkedIn. I believe my LinkedIn is Wesley uh, Patrick Baker. So linkedin.com slash Wesley Patrick Baker. And then in regards to Jitterbit, of course, jitterbit.com. Uh, go ahead and chat with our Driftbot if you'd like. <laughs> um, you could access somebody's calendar. Just click the um, interested in speaking to an expert and the machine will do the rest. We still have the traditional contact us forms. And I actually do keep an eye on all the contact us forms. So if somebody says, hey, I'd love to speak, I guess I, I could see that. But um, yes, if you're looking, just get in contact with me. Definitely LinkedIn. Once again, I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Laura Hall is our executive producer. Our artwork is by Greg Klingshern. This episode was edited by Peter Lopinto. Subscribe to us on your favorite app to learn more immediately actionable best practices from our awesome guests. Thanks for listening to the Hey Salespeople podcast.